Good to see everybody. Welcome to Calvary. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. If you know us, welcome. We are working our way through the book of uh, the Gospel of John here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And we find ourselves in chapter 14. Let's just read the first six verses again. So Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If I were to ask you to uh, use your smartphone to uh, interview people, I mean, just walk around your neighborhood and uh, ask them to take part in a survey um, and allowing you to video their your conversation with them, the ones that didn't call the cops and agreed... Here's the question, okay? How does a person get to heaven? Now, what do you think they'd say? I have personally never done this myself, but I've talked to a lot of people over the years. So I, it's kind of the same thing. And uh, I believe, no doubt, most of them would say, those that believe in heaven, because a lot of folks, you know, but uh, of those who say they believed in heaven, most of them would tell you, well, how does a person get to heaven? Well, you get to heaven by being a good person. Now, one of the biggest misconceptions I have run into over the years talking to people about how it is they get to heaven is this very issue. Most people believe that they are, excuse me, most people believe that good people get to heaven. And they follow up by saying, and I believe I am a good person, so I believe when I stand before God, he will accept me into heaven. Now that shouldn't surprise any of us because the Bible actually says in Proverbs 20, verse 6, pretty much everybody proclaims each their own goodness. In other words, pretty much everyone thinks they're a good person and therefore heaven bound, all right? The problem is that most people define goodness from fallen man's perspective and not from holy God's perspective our holy God in heaven. Most people come to the conclusion that they are good people and therefore worthy uh, of heaven by looking at others in society. Now, we've talked about this, right? I mean, people can always find somebody worse than them. I mean, there's always a thief somewhere, a rapist, murderer, assorted miscreants and malcontents that you can compare yourself to. You know, and If you compare yourself to somebody, you, you come across looking like Mother Teresa. Okay, shining examples of virtue and worthiness of heaven. But you see, the Bible defines goodness as moral perfection. And only God is morally perfect, which Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 19, verse 17, when he told a very religious, a very moral, a very good man, young man, there is none good but God. Now, if Jesus would have said, there is no one as good as God. We would all say amen, but I think I'm still pretty good. 
No, Jesus said there is none good but God. Most people, when you talk to them about heaven, um, most people will say something to the effect, well, I know I'm not perfect, but I still think I'm good enough to get into heaven. But the Bible is very clear that if you're not perfect, you're not good enough to get in. Most people don't know that. See, we're talking, the title of this two-part message, started last week, finished today, is The Only Way to Heaven. Now, we know as evangelicals what that way is, but please, I prepared a message, so let me just go through my, what I've got here, okay? okay. Even though you, it's, for most of you, you understand, all right? But, but the point is, you might understand, but we have been commissioned to go out into the world and tell others. In this room, most of you folks are very learned biblically. You, you understand, at very least, the basics and probably way beyond that. You're a, you're a good, solid group of evangelical Christians. But you're going into a world that is post-Christian. And you're, you don't assume they know anything uh, when it comes to spiritual things. Oh, they might know some spiritual things. I'm talking about the things of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so we have to know this. We have to get this nailed down uh, if we're going to obey what Jesus said. We'll talk about that more in uh, just a moment. But um, most people think I, you know, that many times they'll say, "Yeah, I know I'm not perfect, but I still think I'm good enough to get into heaven." And the idea is, as Jesus told us in many other places, well, if you're not perfect, you're not good enough. You're not good enough because God only accepts sinless perfection into heaven. I mean, Paul said, told us in no uncertain terms in Romans chapter 3 and in chapter 6 that uh, there is no human being that is perfect. Paul said, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good, no, not any. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God is sinless perfection, okay? We all fall short of that. And the wages of sin is death, eternal death uh, in hell is what he's talking about. In other words, this world is not full of people. It's not full of good people that God is treating badly. It's full of bad people that God is treating kindly. What do you mean? He's extending his hands. John 3, 16. Come to me. Uh, I did this last service. That's a different verse. But come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Right? Matthew 11, uh, 28 through 30. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in Jesus won't have to perish in hell, but have everlasting life. That, that's the goodness of God, right? Look, with regard to mankind as a whole, some people are obviously better behaved than others. We all acknowledge that. But that doesn't make them good in the eyes of God. That doesn't make them morally perfect, because they do some good things. Jesus was the only human being who was truly good, because he's the only human being who was truly God, and still is, of course, in heaven. I mean, Jesus was, is God incarnate. He is the only one who could say, I am good. I am the good shepherd, right? And the idea is he could say that because he is God. And we have talked about that throughout John's gospel, uh, no less than last week with verse 6 of John 14. I am the way. I am the name of God. And the way, a description of what he wants to be, or can become to every lost person the way back to God, right? 
But Jesus at his first coming didn't come to judge the world. And I'm talking to you, church, okay? Guys, I'm talking to the church right now, all right? Uh, because the church is a little confused. I'm, just bear with me. Jesus at his, maybe not you guys, I'm talking about the church in general. Jesus at his first coming didn't come to judge the world, obviously. He came or, and sent people to hell. He entered into a fallen world on a search and rescue mission. The, the, the human race hit an iceberg, put it that way, in the Garden of Eden. And we've been taken on water ever since, like the Titanic. And Jesus entered the world on a search and rescue mission. Uh, Luke 19, verse 10, I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. The whole purpose for Jesus coming to the earth, the whole reason he died and rose again was so that people could be saved. Jesus started the work of saving the lost during his earthly ministry. In a limited capacity, what do you mean? Well, he can only minister to the people of Israel, all right? That's where he stayed. That's where he conducted basically his whole ministry throughout the land of Israel. But after he returned to his father and the Holy Spirit was poured out in the day of Pentecost and the church was born, he has now given the work of preaching the gospel and saving the lost to us, his church. But now the scope of this work would no longer be limited to the land of Israel, it would extend to the whole world, even as he has commissioned us to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to every person. When we talk about being disciples of Jesus, are we talking about those who have his heart? Right? And if we're going to have Jesus' heart, we have to understand that first and foremost, his heart is all about reaching people with the gospel. I think that the modern church in America has gotten confused about its mission and purpose for being in the world. Not all churches, of course. I'm talking about, for the most part, between the mainline, denominational churches, and even now a lot of evangelical churches. For many churches today, they believe the mission of the church is that of a social agency. A social agency to help the needy and feed the hungry to work to bring about social justice and even to help save the planet from global warming. But Jesus said clearly that the reason he came into the world was to seek and to save those who were lost. And if that was his heart, it has to be our heart as well. I'm not saying in the course of going into the world and preaching the gospel, we don't feed the hungry, clothe the naked. We don't try to, to maybe build housing in Africa to help people that have nowhere to live. That's all, though, takes us a backseat to our primary mission, which is to preach the gospel. Because, you know, as somebody has said, if you go into the world and you feed people and you clothe people and you house people, they're still going to hell. With a full belly and a warm body, they're still going to hell. Jesus did feed people. He ministered to physical needs, but only then as a springboard to tell people their real need, which was spiritual in nature. They had a hunger within. Yeah, it's hard to tell a person about a spiritual hunger when they have a physical hunger gnawing at them. Hard to listen. That's why the Lord would feed bodies, feed people, before then telling them what their real need was. You eat this bread, you're going to hunger again. You drink this water, you'll thirst again. If you come to me and eat the bread I give and the, drink the water I give, you'll never thirst, you'll never be hungry. He was talking about himself as the bread of life and living water, of course. 
The title of this two-part message is The Only Way to Heaven. Now, I'm confident most of you folks in this room know what the only way to heaven is. I'm not trying to talk down to you. I'm just saying we're at this part uh, in our, our study of John's gospel, and sometimes we'll get into some maybe deeply theological things. Sometimes we'll just get into the basics because that's what's in front of us. Today, more the basics. But Peter, the apostle, said, I'm going to put you in remembrance of things I've, you already know about because sometimes it's just good to be reminded of basic things, okay? As we pointed out in our last week's study, the way to heaven isn't a path we walk. In other words, it's not good works and living a good life. I'm not putting that down. That's just not going to get you to heaven. The way to heaven is not a path we walk. It's a person we know. And his name is Jesus Christ. And even he says here in John 14, verse 3, when he's talking about going away, you can't come with me, but I'm going to come back for you, right? I'll come back and take you to heaven to be with me. The way to heaven is not a path we walk. It's a person we know. Heaven, guys, and by the way, I'm sure you know this, but heaven is an exclusive place. Heaven is a very exclusive place. Only children of God get to live there. Those who have been born into the family of God by receiving Jesus as their Savior, of course, John 3 gets into that in great detail. You know, in these days of tolerance and inclusiveness, it's important to know that God is very intolerant of sin. And those who practice it will be excluded from heaven. Practice it is the key phrase. Uh, all of us sin. We're talking about those who, it's their lifestyle. I mean, you know, we were there one time, then we got saved. We used to sin, uh, you know, as a pattern. It was just our, our lifestyle. But now as Christians, we try to live godly lives, right, through God's strength. And once in a while, we still blow it because we're still, we have a fallen nature that we have to deal with every day. But we're talking about people who are not born again, people who prove they're not born again because they live in sin. It's just their lifestyle. And I'll read to you from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. I'll read it to you out of the NLT 2nd edition, where Paul said, Don't you realize that those who do wrong, and the idea is live habitually in sin, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't fool yourselves. <laughs> no, I'm not going there. Th those who indulge in... I saw a guy on TV, a well-known commentator on a very well-known network, and it's not Christian NN. Okay. And, and this guy, not saved, uh, we know he's not saved, yet there he was the other day with ashes on his forehead. Now, all right, let me just say, ashes are not going to get you to heaven, okay? So people that think they can live, you know, contrary to what God has said all year long, but then go and get some ashes smudged on their heads, and that's going to somehow what? I don't know. Take away everything? Um, these are the kind of people, but yet they live habitually in sin. These are the kind of people that Paul is talking to, right? You know, don't you realize that 
Those who live habitually in sin will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin, who worship idols, commit adultery, are male prostitutes, practice homosexuality, or are thieves, greedy people, drunkards, uh, abusive to others, cheat people. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And he goes on to say, though, boy, you're pretty down if you're, you know, and such were some of you. But you've received Christ. You've been washed. You've been saved. Okay? See, the idea is it doesn't matter how bad a sinner you are or, you know, if you're not saved or a person is not saved right now, it doesn't matter how bad a sinner you are. God is reaching his arms out and saying, I love you and I want you to be my child. Come to me, all right? My son died for your sins. My, my son is, will wash your sins away if you receive him. Anyone can be saved. Paul said, where sin abounds, grace does what? Super abounds, the Greek says. In other words, there is no sin so great that it can't be forgiven, no life so bad that God won't say, I want you to be my child. But you have to repent. You have to repent. And then you have to receive Christ as your Savior. Invite Him to come into your heart. Take up residence. Give Him control. That's what it means to make Him your Lord. And you will instantly be forgiven and adopted into the family of God. And from that point, for all eternity, you will bear the label, Child of God. Yeah, it's true. Heaven is an exclusive place. Only for God's children. The good news is that God is inviting everyone to come to him and become a child of God by faith. Oh, God doesn't want me. I've had people say that to me. They didn't read John 6, 37. And those who come to me, I will not turn away. Anyone who comes to me, I will not turn away. You want eternal life, you come to Jesus. You confess your sins. By God's grace, you repent, come to Christ, believe in, uh, on him. And know this, that I don't care how bad you've lived a life you're li you've lived, Jesus Christ will not turn you away. He'll accept you. In our passage this morning, John 14, verses 1 to 6, Jesus makes a very intolerant and exclusionary, ex exclusionary statement in verse 6 when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That infuriates a lot of folks today who believe that tolerance and acceptance of all people doing all things is the measure of a good person. I don't know where they get that. They didn't get it from God's Word. And you know what? I'm not upset that there's not 150 ways or a million ways. I'm just glad there's one way. Amen. That's all I need. Okay? No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. In other words, there aren't many roads that lead to heaven. There's only one way, and that is through Jesus who died in Calvary's cross and whose blood paid for our sins. That statement is a pivotal statement, and I want to focus the rest of our time this morning on that statement. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Okay, very important. Uh, it sounds like those are three equal statements, but really uh, the way is the, is the um, dominant 
thought based on what Thomas said in verse 5 when he said, Lord, we don't know the way. How can we, you know, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? I'm the way. The idea of Jesus being truth and life are subordinate to that main idea. But let's take them as three standalone ideas. And let's spend the rest of our time looking at them. And, and honestly, folks, for most years, especially, especially if you've been coming for a while, and you've, you've heard me teach this different times in the past, so bear with me. I have a lot of new people, people watching online. Uh, very basic stuff, nothing you know, groundbreaking that you don't probably already know. But this is one of those verses in the New Testament that is a pivotal verse. A pivotal verse, all right? And we, we ought to know it. So first of all, Jesus is the way. For this, turn to Matthew chapter 7. And of course, this is not going to be an exhaustive presentation, as you know I'm prone to do. Uh, I'm going to, I'm just going to hit on these. You can, you can, there's other scriptures you could bring in, no doubt, and uh, maybe, you know, you could, Spirit will lead you into a place in the New Testament that might even be a more powerful example than what I'm giving. These are the ones that I thought of, and I'll leave them to, you know, kind of whet your appetite to dig a little deeper. First, under the heading of Jesus is the way. Let's go to Matthew 7, starting with verse 13, where Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate. The narrow way, we would say. In the Greek, it's a verb, it's a verb form, which conveys the idea of urgency. Do it now, is the idea. Enter by the narrow gate and do it now. It's not enough, guys, to stand back and admire or appreciate the gate. <laughs> a person must enter it if they are going to be benefited by it. Jesus is the narrow gate. He is the door of salvation. Don't stand there admiring him. Enter in to him is the idea. How many people have I run into that want to admire Jesus from a distance? What a great man. What a moral teacher. Is he your savior? Oh, no, I don't believe in that. But he's such a wonder. A lot of people are going to wind up in hell. Honestly, I'm not just being flippant. That admired Jesus. That stood there and from a distance admired Jesus. Great. Don't admire the door. Don't admire the gate. Enter in. John 10, 9. Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Acts 4.12, Peter said, you all know it. Peter said to the Sanhedrin, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Again, Jesus is the narrow gate, the narrow way. Guys, don't miss this, okay, as you study Matthew 7, 13 and 14. In contrasting the narrow way with the broad way, Jesus isn't contrasting religion with, you ready? Atheism, materialism, hedonism, or secularism. Not doing that. In other words, he is not contrasting religion with non-religion. He's contrasting true religion with false religion. 
If you miss that, you're going to miss the point. Both of these roads claim to lead to God. The wide gate isn't marked this way to hell. It's labeled this way to heaven, the same as the narrow gate. But you see, Jesus is warning us to beware because unlike the narrow gate, which does lead to heaven, that's not where the broad gate leads. You see, Satan is a master at religious deception, even disguising himself as an angel of light to deceive. He knows most people will never wind up being atheists. He knows that God has created people with a God-shaped void in their hearts, and by nature they are seeking God. Most people. Most people want to have some kind of relationship with God in their heart of hearts. Satan knows that. He knows that he's not going to convince, although he's having, doing a pretty good job today, but he's not going to convince, convince most people to become atheists. And so therefore he accommodates their religious desires by feeding them religious lies and deceptions. And as such, he's the one who paints this way to God in heaven over the broad gate. And as Jesus said, there are many who go in through that gate. And so here in these verses, Jesus is contrasting true faith with false faith. True religion with false religion. The narrow gate represents, of course, Jesus and the cross. Whereas the broad gate represents the false religion. Now, let's just look at it in its context. There's a broader application, no doubt. But Jesus was talking to his disciples, and he was using the scribes and Pharisees all throughout the Sermon on the Mount to basically tell his disciples, here's the truth, don't listen to the lies. I've come to give you the way to God. The Pharisees and scribes, chief priests, they are a false system that they are embracing, okay? So the narrow gate represents Jesus and the cross, whereas the broad gate represents the false religion of the scribes and Pharisees who uh, were preaching a system of outward rituals and sacrifices and ceremonies and good works as a way to reach God and get to heaven. Therefore, guys, the broad way is the path of human achievement and the narrow way is the path of divine accomplishment. Don't forget that. Every religious system in the world apart from Christianity falls into the category of... Um, Human achievement. It's called religion, right? Human achievement is what you do to earn heaven under all these religious systems, okay? As we said last week, when you think of religion, write over it the word D-O. Because you're never going to stop working to earn God's favor and heaven through these systems. You think of Christianity Right over that, D-O-N-E, done, as in Jesus did the work. From the cross, he said, it is finished. Again, all religions on the face of the planet fall into the category of the path of human achievement. Only the narrow way falls into the category of the way of divine accomplishment. Jesus did the work. Number two, Jesus is not only the way, he is the truth. He is the truth. Uh, Jesus is the truth of God sent from the Father into this world, a world filled with the devil's lies. 
In the Bible, God's truth is also referred to as light. light. And Jesus, of course, is called the true light. Jesus came to the earth, a, a world of darkness, spiritual deception, lies, because Satan is the god of this world. You would imagine that's exactly what he would do, filled with darkness and lies and so on. Jesus came as a light, the true light, to light every man, every person's way back to God. Man fell in the Garden of Eden, was separated from God, and now was doomed to spend eternity in hell if God did not do something which he did. Jesus entered the world on a search and rescue mission, but to save those who were lost, he had to give his life to sacri a sacrifice for many, his blood paying our debt. Because sin, we all have a debt that we owe God, every sin we commit. And Jesus from the cross said it is finished. The Greek is tetelestai, which could be translated paid in full. And you can check out Colossians 2, verses 13 to 15. They really kind of dovetail with that. But Jesus is the true light that has entered a fallen, dark world to light people's way back to God. I'll read to you uh, John 1 as John opened his uh, Bible, uh, his gospel. Uh, John 1, verse 4, In him was life, speaking of Christ, and the life was the light of men. Verse 9, He, Jesus, was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world, every man, every woman. John 8, 12, then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. All right. Of course, Jesus is also called the Word of God, who came into the world to teach us truth in the form of God's Word. Okay, God's, God's Word. Of course, you know John 8, 31 and 2, Jesus said, If you abide in my Word... You are truly my disciples, and you shall know the truth. And, of course, he went on to say, and the, and the truth will make you free from the devil's lies, is the idea. Okay? But Jesus is called the Word of God. Okay? Um, you know, uh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, John tells us, in, uh, I think, verse 14 of uh, chapter 1 of his gospel. So Jesus is the Word of God who came into the world to give us the truth of God, right? It's important that we understand what a privilege it is for us as Jesus' disciples to have been given the ministry of taking the truth of God and taking it out into a world full of lies. I mean, the whole New Testament has much to say about what a blessing that is. We take it for granted. Some Christians don't even bother, you know? They never share the, 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 the good news. They never share God's truth with people. They're afraid, or I don't know what. But we have been given God's truth to take into a world of darkness full of Satan's lies. Now, of course, we are living at a time when there are a lot of people who feel like Pontius Pilate did when, he, when Jesus stood before him, and uh, Pilate says, well, why have you come? He said, I have come to bear witness to the truth, Jesus told Pilate who then sarcastically responded, ah, what is truth, and left, walked away. Pilate didn't believe there was such a thing as truth. A lot of folks today don't believe in absolute truth, do they? They don't believe that anyone can possess ultimate or absolute truth. They believe whatever people want to believe becomes their truth. And that's it, pretty much. Well, that's not true. 
That that's not that's one of those lies we talked about. You see, there is such a thing as ultimate or absolute truth, but it only comes from God. Listen, in the form of revelation, revelation. Now that's important because Christianity claims to be a revealed truth, a revealed truth. A revelation is something that is made known to us by God. Without God revealing it, we can never know it. The entire Bible is supernaturally revealed truth. Supernaturally revealed truth. When we talk about the truth that unlocks the door of salvation, because that's what we're talking about, the only way to heaven, we're talking about the gospel. The gospel. Of course, we did a study on this a few months ago. And uh, you, you want to get it out of John 10. I'll just hang on to that for a second. Uh, but we, stu we studied that series. We were looking at John 10. And let me just read to you John 10, verse 9, where Jesus said, I am the door. You have to go back and read the whole context and maybe get the study. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he, she will be saved. I am the door. Anyone enters by me will be saved. And so the Lord Jesus Christ is telling us that he and he alone, he alone, is the door that leads to salvation. There's only one entrance into salvation, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, he is the door, okay? But listen, and we talked about this uh, a few months ago. We, we did our study, uh, the gospel, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the key that unlocks salvation. I think that was the title, something along those lines. At that time, we said, Jesus is the door, right? That leads to salvation. And we said, look, any door that leads to something of great value is going to be locked. Okay? I mean, we all agree, salvation, eternal life, is pretty valuable, right? And so it's under lock and key, right? It's under lock and key. Um, anything of great value is going to be locked. Behind the door is going to be locked. And um, so is the door of salvation. It requires a key to open it. And what is the key that locks, unlocks the door and allows a person to enter into Christ and find salvation? It is the gospel. As we just said, it's the gospel. The gospel is to salvation what a key is to a lock. All right? However, we all know that a key won't unlock a door if that key has somehow gotten bent or twisted. The key must be straight and true if it's going to be used to open a door. The same is true with the gospel. If the gospel has been twisted, distorted, or perverted in any way, neither will it be able to unlock the door of salvation, and Satan knows that. He knows it very well. And so he has worked very hard over the centuries to twist and distort the gospel and to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ to keep the door of salvation locked to people, even those who really want to know God. Now, here's the thing. If a person wants to know God, that's wonderful. But they have to then take it to the next step and seek out His truth, which is the Word of God, right? Ultimately pointing to Jesus Christ, the Word of God, all right? If people don't read the Bible, and then get involved in some false religious system. That's not God's fault. He gave them the truth, right? On the day of judgment, when God says, I never knew you, depart from me, 
into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And people say, well, Lord, it wasn't fair. I never read the Bible. He's going to say, well, why was that? I made it available to anybody. Now anybody in the world can read the Bible. Just go online. There's free Bibles everywhere. But there are people that have a desire to know God. It's just they never read the Bible, and so they get involved in some false religious system which they believe in with all their heart and maybe even are willing to die for like Muslims today. You can't deny the zeal and the commitment that would cause somebody to die for their faith. The Bible says, though, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end thereof is the way of death. You can be sincerely, you can be um, sincere in your faith and still be sincerely wrong. The gospel will not, uh, if someone believes in a false gospel, that will not get them into heaven. I don't care how strongly they believe in whatever it is they believe. Satan's lies masquerading as God's truth won't save anybody. Only the true gospel can open the door of salvation and allow people to enter in to Christ and be saved. Of course, you know, we, we all read 2 Corinthians 11 where Paul is talking to the Corinthians about how they, after Paul left, they, uh, they allowed false teachers to come in who preached a different Jesus and another gospel and, and they were beginning to embrace these things and Paul says, what is wrong with you? I mean, don't you understand that Satan deceived Eve? I'm, I'm concerned you're being deceived by the devil as well. You know, just because you have a Jesus and a gospel doesn't mean you have the true Jesus and the right gospel. And only the true Jesus and the true gospel can save you. But see, Satan is a master deceiver. You want religion? Fine, I'll give you religion. And he will sow into people's lives some of the weirdest... I have... I can't even tell you some of the weird things that people today have embraced. I'm talking about those who actually believe in Jesus of the Bible, but he's not the true Jesus. He's the brother of Michael. The, he's the brother of Lucifer, or he's Michael the Archangel, or he's the first created uh, being that God the Father, uh, God Almighty ever made. They have all these different Jesuses and all these different Gospels. But Paul said to the Galatians, I'm marveling that you're turning away so soon from the simple gospel that I gave to you and embracing a false, a perverted gospel and not the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, but if we or an angel from heaven, ever hear the angel Moroni? Google it. Uh, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, then what we have preached to you, let him be accursed and that means to be uh, condemned to the lowest hell, right? Folks, look, it's not just the cults that teach a, a false gospel. It's pretty blatant with a lot of these cults, obviously. I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. And I was taught the true gospel. I was taught Jesus is God in human form. I was taught that he went to, to the cross and died for my sins. I was taught on the third day he rose from the dead bodily. I mean, that's all true, right? But what, it wasn't that the Catholic Church left things out. It's they put things into the gospel. Yeah, believe in Jesus. But then light candles and pray rosaries and keep feast days and the holy days and sacraments because all these things plus your faith in Christ will get you, will earn you salvation. 
Well, Paul said to the Galatians in chapter 5, if you try to add any human works to the completed work of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross, you divorce yourself from Christ and you are basically saying, and you condemn yourself to hell. God will not share his glory with another. You know, there's a Catholic church in Italy somewhere where uh, on the outside of the church, uh, on, the, on the land, there's a giant cross. On the one side of the cross is Jesus, on the other side is Mary. And, and there are Catholics who believe, and Pope John Paul II was big in this, that Mary was co-redemptrix, co-redeemer. That, you know, I mean, she didn't purchase as much as Jesus. He, I mean, he paid for 90% of salvation, but she chipped in the 10. And, and this, is, this is a tragic lie. But people embrace, and so any system that says, you know, Jesus plus is just as bad as that says no Jesus at all. All right, quickly. Jesus is the way, the truth, and finally, Jesus is the life. Turn to John chapter 1. John's Gospel, chapter 1. Just read the first four words of, chapter, of verse 4, where John said, In him was what? Life. In Jesus was life. When John says in him was life, he's not talking about physical life because he already covered that in verse 3, that Jesus Christ created the whole physical universe. Uh, all things were made by him, and without him was nothing made that was made. He covered that in verse 3 of, of uh, chapter 1 of his gospel. The Greek word used here for life is zoe, and it refers to spiritual life. Spiritual life. The word bios in Greek is the word we get our word biology from. That refers to physical life. So John is saying that not only is Jesus the founder of all physical life, but he is also the fountain from which all spiritual life flows as well. Read John 4, the woman by the well. You drink the water that I give, you'll never thirst, but it will be like an eternal spring bubbling up from within you unto eternal life. He was talking about receiving uh, her receiving him into her heart. Do you realize that 54 times in John's gospel he talks about the life that Jesus gives? It almost seems like it's an obsession with John. And it was, but in a good way. When you love people, and John was not only an apostle, he was a pastor. When you love people, right, you want to give them the truth. You don't want them to go to hell. We can be a little obsessive, especially if you're brand new in the faith. You're a little overzealous, okay? Uh, I was just telling first service that we had a young guy that got saved in his teen years, and, uh, and I do believe he was called to be an evangelist, but he went to his family, and he just bludgeoned them with the gospel. So much that they, they, he turned them off. And they hated me because he was going to our church. Like I was telling him, you know, just keep bludgeoning them with the gospel, you know. Well, he grew up, got, you know, he grew up in his faith and, and grew up in, in age and eventually became one of my uh, uh, pastors. And, and by this time, the Lord had been kind of softening his mom's heart. And she had seen him grow and she saw him now as a pastor and he had become much more uh, tactful and things. And so uh, she asked for a meeting with me and, 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 and her son. And I sat down and, um, and, and she told me this. 
how that he had bludgeoned her and turned her off. And I said, I want you to know something. That was all him. I didn't tell him to do that, okay? But I told her, I said, look, I'm sorry. Sometimes we get a little overzealous because we love our families. We love our moms and dads and brothers. Sometimes we just come across too strong and we turn them off. That's on us, but we love you, and that's why it sometimes happens. Well, God softened her heart, and we prayed to receive Christ, and she got saved and began to come to the church too. But again, guys, the Greek word that is used for life, eternal life, is zoe. Again, it means spiritual life, but the idea is, don't miss this, it's talking about the life of God, the life of God. The Bible defines Zoe as a dynamic life, a fruitful life, a joyful and a fulfilled life. It's a life that Jesus himself said in John 10, verse 10, was abundant. And even David chimed in in Psalm 23 when he said, it's overflowing. My cup overflows. But here's the problem. If you were to go around asking people to, to define the concept of life, just life, for many of you, it would be a little hard to nail down. Most people today would probably try to define life in terms of a quality of living. A quality of living. They would say that life is about achieving a certain level of happiness based on success in their chosen career field, which brings them affluence, material possessions, and possibly even fame if that's their chosen career path. But this abundant life that Jesus spoke of, isn't external, as many believe and teach, especially in the church today. It isn't an abundance of money or possessions or earthly success. This life is spiritual in nature, as Jesus said in John 6, 63, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Look, money can buy you things but not happiness. Books but not wisdom. Money can buy you a quality of living, but not a quality of life, the first being outward, the second being inward. In fact, Jesus warned us against trying to define our lives in terms of our possessions when he said in Luke 12, 15, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a person's life does not consist in the abundance of the things they possess. You see, guys, Eternal life, Zoe life, isn't a quantity of life. It is a quality of life. The thing that makes eternal life so wonderful and so appealing is not, is not its quantity. In other words, never ending, but its quality, richness and fullness. Eternal life wouldn't be appealing if it simply meant life stretched out into eternity. Or life that never ends. I mean, in that regard, life wouldn't be desirable if that life was painful, hopeless, and empty, right? I mean, like being paralyzed um, and confined to a bed, not being able to move, get up, feed yourself. Now, how would you like it if you walked into a room, uh, maybe a hospital room, and there was somebody lying there paralyzed from the neck down. They couldn't move. They couldn't breathe without machines. They couldn't feed themselves. They had to be fed through tubes. And you walked over and you leaned over whispered in their, in their ear, how would you like to live forever? If they could talk, if they couldn't, thank God they couldn't move. They'd pick up something and bludgeon you to death. 
<laughs> what do you mean? If they could talk, they'd say, what do you mean? Would I, how would I like to live forever? I'm praying for death. Death is the sweet release I'm waiting for. You see, just because you promise somebody life that never ends doesn't mean it's going to be something they desire. Uh, people are going to live in hell forever. They're not going to be blessed, right? It's not the quantity, eternal life, that is a blessing. It's the quality. That's what the word zoe gets into. It's life in all of its full, fullness and blessing and richness. We enter into it when we got saved. Although we're still fighting the flesh and we're still living in an environment that is wicked, which kind of, you know, dulls the... It dulls the, uh, the, the, the fullness of the joy that we have as Christians. Can you imagine being someday transported from here to heaven and in the way, on the way you jettison this sinful body and get a new one where you don't have any sin nature, you don't have to wrestle with sin anymore? Can you imagine and what Jesus meant when he said, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly? Can we even get our minds around what that's going to mean someday? But even now, we, we have a little taste of it, right? We have joy. We have peace. We, we have love. We have all these attributes that are really the attributes of God. When we prayed to receive Christ, Peter said, 2 Peter 1, verse 4, we were made partakers of the divine nature. In other words, God, God's life came into us because the Holy Spirit came into us the moment we received Christ. And now he is working from within to bear the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those guys are the attributes of God, God's nature. My point is, yes, Jesus is the way to God. That way is through the gospel which is rooted in what he is, who he is and what he did. Access by truth resulting in life, life eternal. I mean, it's something we really almost can't get our minds around now, although we try. Whatever this eternal life is, which starts on earth, is going to wind up in heaven forever. Whatever it is, and Paul said, look, eyes have not seen nor ears heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God's given us a little preview because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us now. But multiply that maybe a million times a million or a billion times a billion. Talk about what it's going to be like in heaven someday. The richness. We have no idea of the life that we are about to live and I believe live very soon because I think the rapture is coming very close. And so, guys, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Go out and share that with people because people are lost. People have no truth. And many of them want to end their lives. That's how bad it is. We come with hope. May God give us grace to go out into a hurting world with hope. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that is ours in Christ and that we have been commissioned by you to take that good news into all the world, Lord. It's a dark, it's a hurting world. We pray that you would give us grace to love those that may hate us. 
but that you would give us grace to love them, realize that they're not our enemies. They've been taken captive by the devil to do his will. And we have the keys that not only will unlock the prisons they live in, it will open the door of salvation that they can move into. We just thank you, Lord, for your incredible grace. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.